Good evening, my dear brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's lovely that we can gather and to our Bible class once again in the middle of a week to strengthen ourselves in the things around the Word of God. As you may no doubt have heard, our poor brother Lane has gone in for yet another eye operation. Um, we pray that God's blessing might be with him. Um, he's very fortunate that he has actually done this class very recently um, at Teacher Gully Special Effort. And so we are to continue our studies as normal, although we'll be doing it via the tape um, at the appropriate time after the reading. It's quite unusual, isn't it, thinking of listening to a Bible class on tape, but if, when we think about it, this is what many of our brethren and sisters do in isolation and in few numbers throughout Australia and throughout the world, and it's, a, I guess, heightens to us a blessing that we normally have, that we can have speakers every week speaking to us about God's Word. But there's no difference to the matter that's to be presented tonight, we just need to have our minds with it and to be able to think about what our brother Lane is going to talk to us about tonight. To introduce that though, we'll have our brother Andrew Robson read for us Joshua chapter 2. Reading Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into an harlot's house named Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come unto thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and said thus, There came two men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass, about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out, whither the men went I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house, and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords. And as soon as they were pursued after them, were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that Yahweh hath given you all the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came up out of Egypt, and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Zion and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our heart did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is a God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by Yahweh, since I have showed you kindness, that ye will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. And that ye will save alive my father and my mother, 
and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our life for yours, if ye utter not this our business. And it shall be, when Yahweh hath given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourselves there three days, until the pursuers be returned, and afterward may ye go your way. And the the men said to her, We will be blameless of this thine oath which thou hast made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of the house into the street His blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be upon our head, if any hand be upon him. And if thou utter this our business, then we will quit of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. And she said, According unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet line in the window. And they went, and came into the mountain, and abode there three days, until the pursuers were returned. And the pursuers sought them throughout all the way, but found them not. So the two men returned, and descended from the mountain, and passed over, and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all things that befell them. And they said unto Joshua, Truly Yahweh hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. Thank you, Brother Andrew, for that reading. So our Brother Lane is to speak to us tonight by the tape um, to the subject, Women in the Line of Christ, continuing on where we left off last year. And tonight we're going to, he's going to speak on Rahab, um, I might just indicate to Greg when we get started if it needs to go up a bit in the front hall here or the volume, maybe if you indicate to me if you can't quite hear properly. Thanks, Greg. Brothers and sisters and young people, he's not a baddie, another bad woman we wouldn't like to have in our ecclesia, would we? We'd be very ashamed to have a harlot as a sister in our ecclesia. But remember what we read in Romans chapter 8? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. It is God that justifies. And so we've got to learn to look through the eyes of God, as it were. Joshua had sent out two spies, go view the land and Jericho. So they walked through all the land that was spied out to give a detailed account of what they saw to Joshua. Just like Moses had sent out those 12 spies early on. And they had to spy out Jericho. They had to find out everything about Jericho. About where the gates were, the 
fortifications, where the palaces were, what is the strongest place, what is the weakest place. They had to exactly find out everything about Jericho. And then, of course, they stayed with Rahab. And Rahab undoubtedly was a harlot because the Bible says so. But apart from that, the Bible says other things about Rahab. If you come to Hebrews chapter 11, it's that wonderful chapter of all the works of faith by men and women of old. And I can tell you one thing, brothers and sisters. My name isn't there, neither is your name there. But Rahab's name is there. So, although she was a harlot, she qualified to be put in the same category as Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. It says in verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she received the spies with peace. We tend to think of the harlot Rahab. Harlot comes first. But what comes first here? The faith of Rahab. So the emphasis in Hebrews chapter 11, is the faith of the harlot Rahab. Turn over one or two pages, go to James chapter 2. And that's that wonderful chapter about faith, which got to be, go hand in hand with works. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Now the whole argument of the Apostle James is here, that you must put that royal law, the law of the kingdom, into our lives, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, and God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he uses two examples. The one is Abraham, who was called a friend of God. And who can be compared with Abraham? Rahab. Verse 25 says, Likewise, so in the very same manner, on the same level, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out by another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And that's the record the New Testament gives us, that new perspective on Rahab. This is the way God sees, and not as man sees. So that should guide all our own judgments of script, people in the Scripture, and our members of our Ecclesia, and worldwide as well. How does God view us? When we are your new Ecclesia, or I'm my Ecclesia in Brighton, we wouldn't have chosen the members which are there, would we? But God has chosen them. Like God chose Rahab. And we should respect that. That it was God's choice to bring you and me here. It's not our choice. So, if God then has chosen Rahab, by faith he was justified, then let us look at her faith, not at her profession. Because we had written earlier in that overview that Rahab was a harlot yet living with her family. And we said that's quite unusual because if a woman takes up a profession like that, there's always a certain amount of shame involved and she lives on her own somewhere. And therefore, 
you didn't become a harlot unless it was absolutely necessary. Very few women would choose to do that by, for, by their own volition. But in the past, as we said earlier, if a woman's husband had died, she was sent back to her family and had to fend for herself. And Rahab had taken on herself not only to look and support after herself, but her own family, her father and her mother, her brothers and sisters as well. That was the kind of woman she was. She grew crops, she was growing flax, so she must have had some fields which a woman could never get, only through her husband. So I do think, although I can't prove it, that her husband must have died and she inherited the land, but the income wasn't enough, or on her own she couldn't work enough on the field to support herself and her family, and as it has been suggested, she may have run an inn, for example, and what she did was as part of the services, which may have been all right in the eyes of the Canaanites, but not in the eyes of God. But once she was turned to the faith, she never did it again. So there is room for repentance. Think of Mary Magdalene, out of whom the Lord cast seven demons. Now, demons are wrong ways of thinking, the wrong way of approach to life. Seven is a complete number, so whatever she did was wrong. It was economically, morally, spiritually, philosophically. Whatever that woman did was wrong. And she was the first one to whom Christ appeared after he came out of the tomb. So here we've got Rahab then, and she was put in a certain position because those two men, those two spies, came to her and lodged in her house. I may think they were immoral men. They may not have been. They were just looking for a place to stay. And therefore, she may have had a hostel or some kind of a place, because usually you do have one inn in an ancient town, like Bethlehem had an inn where Mary and Joseph had to go to, to stay overnight. And therefore, those men naturally went to the local hotel, as we would call it. Now, the men of the king of Jericho wanted to apprehend these two men because he heard about them and then he must have learned that they were spying out the city. And of course, right across the valley there where the river Jordan runs into the Dead Sea, he saw that massive camp of Israel. And they weren't there on a holiday, were they? They knew that they were coming to cross the river Jordan and the first city to attack was Jericho. And so once you've been there, it's quite plain uh, that that would be the conclusion drawn by the king of Judah. And then there's another problem, because she told a lie, didn't she? She said, well, the men, they came men unto me, verse 4 of Joshua chapter 2, but I wished not whence they came. It came to pass about the time of shutting the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whether the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. Well, that wasn't quite right, because she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stacks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. Is it right to lie? Or is that a right question to ask? A man, a man's view would be, it's wrong to lie. But what is the alternative? Would it be right to betray those two men and to cause a certain death to come upon them? We wouldn't encourage anyone to lie against the commandments of God. But to save life, like we saw with Judah and Tamar, is more important than anything else. Many other people were ready to lay down their life to save others. In the Second World War, even in my native country, in Holland, many people harbored Jews, and they risked their life to do so. So she told a little untruth to save the life of those two men. 
Why did she do it? As we are told in Hebrews 11, she did it by faith. What was her faith? What did she believe? She went up to those two men on the roof after those soldiers went away in verse 9. And here she expresses her faith. In verse 9, she said unto the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. What a marvelous statement that is. She knew that there was only one God who was called Yahweh. So she knew about the significance of the name Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. He will become mighty ones. And she must have somehow known about the promises which God made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint because of you. For, and now she expresses her faith even further, we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did under the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sion, and Oak, whom you utterly destroyed. Now go quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which you all know very well. But if she believed that Yahweh dried up the waters of the Red Sea, what is its significance? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. Well, she certainly wasn't ignorant. She fully knew and understood the significance of how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and it all eat the same spiritual meat, and it all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritually following rock, and that rock was Christ. She knew about all the evil that happened to herself by their own wrongdoings, but with many of of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our examples or our types to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, to be idolaters, as some of them, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, the letters commit fornication is roundly condemned by Scripture, as some of them committed for the sake of it and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Now the letters tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Now the murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things which Rahab knew happened unto them for types, typically. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So the faith of Rahab is just as relevant for us as it was for her then. She must have believed in the promise that Yahweh has given you the land. We all know the promises. We learn them in Sunday school. But do we really understand the full impact of its meaning? Because God had said unto Abram, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Well, Tamar knew about that seed. I think Rahab knew about that seed also because she was the next one mentioned in the line of Jesus. And to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their faith. So just by saying very simply that she believed that Yah had given the land to Israel, and that she had heard that Yah had dried up the water of the Red Sea, that was her statement of faith. They were not just two little sentences. 
It's like when our young people get baptized and they're asked, do you believe in the things concerning Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God? They say, yes, I do. But you can't be baptized on the strength of saying, yes, I do. But we know that behind that, yes, I do, there's a full comprehension of the statement of faith, all that is necessary to be baptized and eventually be saved. So that simple faith expressed by her has much more to it than what appears here. If you go a few pages to Joshua chapter 6, then we see that Gideon had a very same faith. Sorry, in Judges chapter 6. And there's those very few words which tells us of volumes of the faith which, say, Gideon had. It was in the time of the judges when every man did right that that was in his own eyes. It wasn't right in the eyes of God, because the chapter starts with the children of Israel that evil in the sight of Yahweh. And he delivered them into the hand of the Midianites seven years. God sent a prophet to them in verse 8. Yahweh sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus says Yahweh, Elim of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. That is what Rhea believed. And I delivered you out of, the house, out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land, exactly as Rahab said. And I said unto you, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. Fear not the Elohim of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. And Rahab certainly didn't. But ye have not obeyed my voice. But God doesn't leave Israel like that. Then he sent an angel. So first a prophet, now an angel of Yahweh came in verse 11 and sat under an oak which was in Ophrah that belonged to Jeroz the Abiasrite. And his son Gideon was threshing wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. That's the same time when flax also is harvested. So we're talking about the same time period as Rahab as well. And then the angel of Yahweh appeared unto him and said unto him, Yahweh is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. What a statement. Wish that was said to me by an angel to be a mighty man of valor. None of us feel like that exactly. Why did the angel say that to him? It says, Gideon said unto him, O oh my Lord, if Yahweh be with us, why then is all this befallen us? He didn't feel mighty at all. He didn't feel that Israel was mighty. He felt the Midianites were mightier than them. And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? Exactly what Rahab said. But now Yahweh has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. And then Yahweh looked upon him, he was the name-bearing angel, and said, Go in this thy might. What was his might then? His might was that he believed that Yahweh brought us about of Israel. And he believed in all the miracles which you just read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which our fathers told us of. He believed it, but he saw no way out because the Midianites were stronger at that moment. But the angels saw his might. And if he believed just those simple promises which God made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, and to David, that is our might as well. It was Rahab's might. We think it's just Sunday school. It isn't, Brennan, it's the foundation of our faith. Because the promise we made to Abraham and to his seed, and that seed is Christ, we are told in Galatians chapter 3. And if you go back to uh, Joshua chapter 2, back to Rahab, what was the effect of what she believed? Because she believed that God brought him out of Egypt, 
that the Red Sea was split. It was 40 years later, actually, that they appeared right across the River Jordan, that massive encampment there with the tabernacle right in the middle. It wasn't easy for Israel because they had to cope with Balaam and all his uh, problem with the Midianites' women. But she said in verse 11, As soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. See the powerful effect the fulfillment of God had on this, of his word had on this woman. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your Elohim, he is Elohim in heaven above and in earth beneath. What a statement of faith this was. She may have been a harlot, but this was her faith. Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by Yahweh, since I have showed you kindness, that ye also will show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. Why? That ye will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our souls from death. So she was asking for a token. And a token is not just a little scribble on the wall. The Hebrew word is ot, which means a sign. It, it is something which signifies something. Just like that scarlet thread signifies something. Like the pledge signified something. She needed something with great significance that could save a life. Her father, her mother, her brethren and her sisters. And to save their souls from death. She was asking for a sign that that would be granted to her. And of course that's what we want to be granted to us also. So what is a sign? And I think the word token doesn't really convey the deep meaning of that Hebrew word for a sign. In Genesis chapter 17, let's look at a few signs so we know, we understand the full significance of that particular word. In Genesis 17, we all know it so well, but it's good to look at it from this particular angle. In verse 9 we read that, God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a token, a sign of the covenant betwixt me and you. So it is more than the very thing itself, that what they had to do was a sign of the covenant which God had made with Abraham. And unless we cut off our flesh, our old man, we won't be part of that covenant of Abraham either. So what Abraham had to do was only a sign of the faith which he had before he was circumcised, as the New Testament tells us. But that's the importance of a sign. Go to Exodus chapter 4. We were there earlier when we read about that, serp, that staff becoming a serpent and then that became the rod in the hand of Moses by which he did all those miracles. But then in verse 6, God gave him a second sign. And Yahweh said, Furthermore unto him, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. 
And he said, put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe thee, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. So two signs were given them. It wasn't just a bit of uh, uh, wizardry that you can throw a stick down, becomes a serpent, you pick it up again to impress people. Now it signifies something. Because as we said earlier, that staff was Christ, who had first our serpent nature, and the second time he became that rod by which God could do all those wonderful signs. It's the same sign as the hand which went into his bosom. And we know that Jesus is the right hand of God. When he was revealed the first time on earth, he was, as it were, leprous like we all are. We all unclean. And we can be part of the congregation of God until we are healed. And Christ was only healed after he made a sacrifice for our own sins. And he died and he was raised from the dead. And then he came out, as it were, for the second time and that hand was healed. And he became the right hand of God. It says in uh, Isaiah that God put his glorious hand, his glorious arm to the right hand of Moses. So the right hand of Moses was first leprous and then healed. That was the right hand of God. And all the power and the glory of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, who was first as leprous as the hand of Moses was. That is the sign, brethren and sisters. It's much more than what you see only in the hand is full of little sores and, and then it is healed. That in itself means nothing. It signifies something. And in Exodus chapter 12, we know these things so well, but we should always, when we read this, pick out those words and try and meditate on the full meaning of those words. In verse 11, thus shall you eat the Passover, with your loins girded, that is Exodus 12, and verse 11, your shoes upon your feet, your staff in your hand, and shall eat it in haste this year's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am Yahweh. And the blood of that lamb shall be to you for a sign upon the houses which ye are, it says actually in the Hebrew, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So that blood was of course a token for the angel to pass over the house because that particular plague was going in this particular time but we are also in that house, the house of God. We must stay inside that house because if you leave that house the angel will get us and will kill us. And that blood of that lamb is only a sign of the greatest sacrifice of Christ by whose blood we are saved as well. We are not in Egypt. We didn't live 4,000 whenever, how many years it was ago. But what was given to the Israelites was a sign for them and for us. So when Rahab, we go back to Joshua chapter 2 then, she didn't ask for a, a little token she asked for something which signifies something, which he could believe in and which the spies would understand also. And then we have this in chapter 2 and verse 18. 
and most of you will know this. It says, Behold, when we come into the land, the spy said to Rahab, Thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by. And thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. Just like in the Passover, all the people that were in that house were going to be saved. All of us who stay inside our ecclesia and we have the faith of Rahab will be saved. But we must stay inside. We can't hope to be saved when we leave our meeting. Now this line of scarlet thread in Hebrew is tikvat chut shani. And with tikvah you all know it means the hope. It's the hope of the scarlet thread. Tikva in Hebrew is hope. Kaf is a line. But it doesn't actually say line. It's the hope of that scarlet thread. All her hope was in that scarlet thread. It was a sign for her and it was her hope. Interestingly, the name of Israel's national anthem is also called Hatikva. It means the hope. It's quite interesting, actually. Why would they call their national anthem by the name Hatikva? Same word as this line in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 18. It's an interesting connection, actually, because the man who wrote it in 1880, about, his name was Naphtali Imbar, and he was the secretary of Sir Lawrence Oliphant. And Sir Lawrence Oliphant was an emissary who has been to Israel, he collected funds from many sources to buy land for the Jewish settlers. And he was the secretary, that Naphtali Imbar, who wrote the Tikva, of Sir Lawrence Oliphant. Now, Robert Roberts, in the previous century and before that, he collected also funds from Christadelphians to buy land for those first settlers in Israel. It's wonderful because those Brethren, like John Thomas and Robert Roberts, they fully understood that Israel had to go come back so that eventually Christ may come back and turn the nation back to God. And they wanted to help that along by purchasing land so that collections in the meetings. Do we have collections in our meetings nowadays for Israel? Israel has been with us. All you young people, as far as you know, Israel has always been there. But I'm old enough, well, not to remember, but when I was born, Israel didn't even exist. And it was great excitement in the brotherhood that he was a new nation of Israel and this man wrote the national anthem. Why did he call it Hatikva? Why did he call it the hope? Well, as the secretary of Sir Lawrence Oliphant, he must have read the correspondence between Robert Roberts and his boss. And Robert Roberts undoubtedly would have spoken about El Pis Israel, Tikvat Israel, we would say in Hebrew, about the hope of Israel. And I'm quite sure that, even by God's providence, that he had had some understanding about the hope, which we also believe in, the hope of Israel, for which the Apostle Paul was bound, that he wrote his anthem and called it the hope. And it's wonderful that there may even be a Christadelphian connection with the name of the national anthem of Israel. There are two places in Israel where you can go to. One is called Rosh Pina in Upper Galilee and a little moshav called Yesod HaMa'ala which are built on land that was purchased with Christadelphian funds collected by Robert Roberts and funneled uh, to um, Robert, to Sir Lawrence Oliphant and 
Swedish secretary of NAFTA, Inbar, who wrote this wonderful anthem called The Hope, the Tikva. That was the sign which Rahab asked for. Our hope is also the hope of the scarlet thread. We don't have a different hope from that which Rahab had. Now, scarlet, as you all know, is the color of blood. And the significance of the only blood which has any significance at all is, of course, the blood of the covenant which God made us through Jesus Christ. And all those sacrifices, right from the first one, the lamb that was slain in the, in the Garden of Eden, they all typified, looked forward to that great sacrifice. Like it says in Peter, I read to you because you know it by heart, I'm sure. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 18 to 20, it says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, which had a color of scarlet, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, or from the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And that is the hope. She must have understood the significance of the color of scarlet, the hope. She must have heard about the color of blood that went round the doorpost of the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And she must have understood and she would have listened to those spies that you've got to stay inside the house. If it says, whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if anybody goes out of the doors of that house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head and we shall be guiltless. As the same as as Brennan said, we must stay inside our community. Don't leave it and don't bring in people that don't have the same faith in. Now, Scott appears also in the Song of Songs, that wonderful song which Solomon wrote. If you go to the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, Shir HaShirim, it is called in Hebrew, we have there a description of the, what we believe is the Bride of Christ. And look how the bridegroom is describing his bride. Well, that could be a study on its own. We just look at one particular thing. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. It says within thy locks. It actually says behind thy veil. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Remember that kid of the goat which Tamar asked for? Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are shorn, which came up from the washing, whereof every one bare twins. None is barren among them. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. That's one of the attributes of the bride of Christ. Her lips are like a thread of scarlet. She doesn't have lipstick on her lips to make them look red, but... Her lips are like a thread of scarlet. What does it mean? If you go to the New Testament, to Colossians, chapter 4. There are all sorts of instructions there. Just look at verse 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, 
redeeming or buying up the time. And certainly we live in a time when we expect the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ to celebrate that kingdom which even Rahab believed in. Walk in wisdom. We need to walk wisely, brethren and sisters. We need to examine our conduct on a daily basis and try to judge as God sees and not as men sees. Then it says, verse 6, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. So it all depends how we speak. Our speech will be always with grace. And think of the many words that come of our lips in the daytime. Are they always graceful? Do they always talk about the mercy of God? Is our speech seasoned with salt? And salt was used in the sacrifices. It speaks about the salt of the covenant. And the scarlet represents that blood of the covenant. So if we are developing ourselves to be the bride of Christ, then our lips must be like a scarlet thread. If the scarlet represents the blood of the covenant, then that is what should come of our lips. If other things come of our lips, we are not the bride of Christ. So that is the significance of that scarlet thread. So we see then the faith of Rahab. A small sideline is perhaps the following question. Where did the spies get the scarlet thread from? And who were the spies? They aren't named, but one likely candidate, of course, who benefited directly from Rahab's faith would have been Salman, who later married Rahab. And the spies, we said earlier, to spy out Jericho. They would have had an intimate knowledge of the city, which they had to spy out. They would have studied the defenses and the locations of important buildings. They knew where the palace of the king was. They knew where the treasury was, where all the gold and the silver and all the beautiful garments were kept. And there's one of the spies who had intimate knowledge of the location of the treasury, where the gold and the silver was kept, and who possibly had a scarlet thread with him. Because where did they get it from? How does the scarlet thread suddenly appear on the scene? I've got to go back to Tamar. Let's go back to Tamar and Genesis 38. Got this wonderful story about Tamar, and she badly wanted that seed, and she believed that her firstborn son would be that seed of the woman who was going to overcome the seed of the serpent. Look what happened to her in verse 27 of Genesis 38. It came to pass in the time of her travel that behold, twins were in her womb. It came to pass when she travelled that one put out his hand. The midwife took and bound up his bound upon his hand a scarlet thread. That's where it comes from, saying, This came out first. It came to pass as he drew back his hand that behold his brother came out, and she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach shall be upon thee, therefore his name was called Phyrus. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zara. So Zara had the scarlet thread didn't he? I'm sure he would have used it and kept it close to him all the time because for him that was a sign that he was the firstborn trying to ignore the fact that he withdrew his hand and his brother pushed out in front of him. If we go down to Joshua chapter 7 
then we are confronted here by one man who knew exactly everything about Jericho, who knew where the treasures were, he knew how to get the gold and the silver and the Babylonish garment, and his name was Achan. Who was Achan? Look in verse 1. It says, The children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah. There you got Zerah, who was the son of Tamar by Judah. He took the accursed thing, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled upon Israel. In verse 18, again, when they brought out the Urim and the Thummim, first the tribe of Judah, and verse 16 was taken, and then it says, verse 17, the family of Judah took the family of the Zarhites from Zerah. He took the family of the Zerites, men by men, and Zabdi was taken, and he brought his household men by men, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the son of Judah, actually, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. What did he acknowledge? Verse 20, he answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against Yahweh, Ellen of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils, he knew exactly where to go, a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver, he knew where they were, and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels in weight. I coveted them and took them, and behold, I hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. So he was a man who both had the scarlet thread but he was carried away by his greed and went right against the importance of the scarlet thread. No point having a scarlet thread. No point knowing about the sacrifice of Christ. No point coming to the table on a Sunday morning and drink that little bit of wine if you don't fully understand the significance of that particular type. A little bit of glass of wine won't save us. It's the blood of Christ which saves us. The scarlet thread didn't save Achan because it blinded him by all the gold and the silver and the goodly garments which he saw. And it can so easily happen to us also, brethren and sisters. We can just be carried away by the riches of this world, get a good job and get a powerful car and all the riches of this world. And if you do that, if you go out for that, we lose the significance of the scarlet thread. And there'll be a tragedy. It was a tragedy for Achan because he lost his life. And we don't want to lose our life. So what she asked for was a great sign. It was a sign of the scarlet color of the blood of Christ. That was first given to Zerah. But remember, he withdrew his hand. Why did he withdraw his hand? As a baby, he didn't know anything at all. I think it was all guided by God. Why did she have twins, by the way? It's an amazing thing as well, isn't it? It says in Genesis 28 and verse 14, and God gave the promise to Jacob, I read it out to you. It says, Thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt Phares spread abroad, that's the name Phares, that's what it means, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in thee and thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So the name Phares is there in the promise which Isaac gave to Jacob in Genesis 28 and verse 14. And so the whole episode of having twins, the first one got the covenant of the color of the blood, but he withdrew himself, and the second one prayed forth. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, 
And there you've got a wonderful explanation. Ephesians chapter 3 starts like this. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Which mystery? Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it was now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. With mystery, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. First time was shown in Phares and in Zerah. God first gave the covenant of blood to Israel. But like Jesus said, he came to his own, but his own received him not. And they withdrew as a nation. They didn't believe in the promises. And after the Gentiles broke through, and that's where we are, like Paris, like Ferris, in a sense. But it brings great responsibility, brothers and sisters, because in chapter 5 of Ephesians, we are told in verse 8, For ye, this talk to the Gentiles, were sometimes darkness. Like Rahab was in darkness before she knew about the hope of the scarlet thread. But now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And it is a wonderful privilege, brothers and sisters, that through the reading of the word, that light is given to us. So, when we see then that scarlet thread, there's another lesson also, that the Gentiles are also partakers of the hope of Israel. If you go to Romans chapter 9, that speaks about another incident of a woman in the line of Jesus, although not mentioned, who had twins. And why is that again? In Romans 9, in verse Oh, verse 7, actually. It says, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. But the firstborn son of Abraham was Ishmael. But God has chosen that through Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, not the firstborn, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And God had actually rejuvenated the bodies of Sarah and of Abraham so that that son of promise could be born. And not only this, because the next generation, Rebekah also, then she had conceived by one, by her father Isaac, for the children being not yet born. She had twins, just like Tamar had, not having done any good or evil, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him that it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And that is how God in the very past showed that the Gentiles also can be partakers of the hope of Israel. A Gentile like Rahab was. It goes actually much further back to Genesis chapter 9. That great mystery which the Apostle Paul revealed unto the Ephesians in chapter 9, just after the flood, We already have this promise, which was later enforced in the promise to Abraham, where God speaks about Shem and Ham and Japheth. But we know that the Jews come from Shem. Most of the dark-colored people come from Ham and from Canaan. 
and Japheth was the father of all the Europeans, the white people. Verse 27, it says, God shall enlarge, to what actually means to persuade Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. For Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and all the nations of Israel come from Shem. We as Gentiles come from Japheth. But Japheth, God will persuade Japheth. The name Japheth means to persuade. And they shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And if we are persuaded of what we believe, if we are persuaded of the hope of Israel, then we also will live in the tents of Shem. It says in Acts chapter 19 that Paul persuaded and turned away much people from among the Gentiles to the faith. And so... It wasn't Ishmael, the firstborn of, Ab- of Abram. It was Isaac. It wasn't Esau. It was so. It wasn't Ab- It was not Ishmael, but Isaac. It wasn't Esau, but Jacob. It wasn't Reuben, the firstborn, but Judah. It wasn't Manasseh, but it was Ephraim. And with Tamar, it wasn't Zerah, the firstborn of Judah, but it was Perez. And so. In these types, we have what we can read in Acts chapter 13. That's the fulfillment of all those types. And that's where we benefit, brothers and sisters, in Acts chapter 13. Where Paul and Barnabas were speaking in the synagogue of Antioch. And in verse 45, when the whole city came together to hear the word of God, said in verse 45 of Acts chapter 13, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. The scarlet thread was first given to Zerah. Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham. And Esau was the firstborn of Isaac. And Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob, but none of them got it. But seeing ye put it from you, and that's what they did, they showed it in their lives, and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so has the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for the salvation unto the ends of the earth. And therefore, it says in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. We are Gentiles, brothers and sisters, like Rahab was. But if we have that same hope as Rahab, the hope of the scarlet bread, of the scarlet thread, which is the color of blood, the blood of Christ, which he shed for the forgiveness of our sins, then we can be saved also. If you understand the full significance of that scarlet thread, just like the pledge saved Tamar's life, so we also need to have that scarlet thread. And our lips should always be speaking words of grace. So let us then fervently keep our hope of the scarlet thread so we can be delivered from the judgments that are going to come on the world, just like they did on Jericho. And although we are Gentiles, that we may be permitted to live in the promised land. Well, I'll save a speaker from any questions, but um, there is time for some comments if you'd like to make some on the wonderful woman of Rahab.
sign on the oak. It's the most amazing thing, isn't it? So that when God purposes a work to be known, his signature to be upon it, it, it does have that effect. I do believe today, even in our world, even in a religious world, there is a general recognition that there's something different about the Jewish people. It may not have the clear enunciation always that we have here for, uh, from the mouth of uh, Rahab, but uh, usually it is when you say to somebody, look, Israel is the most significant thing, and people will listen to that. Rarely will they say, oh, that's the same as any other person. It's rarely that people do that. There's something that has been been done and impressed upon their minds. It just doesn't happen with other people. It's a wonderful thing. When God wants people to know, however vague, then it works. And so here's a good, marvelous example. This woman, you might think that she, she'd never listen to such a message, but it had got through her at some stages in life. She must have been a pretty hard crusted character. But that message had got through, and now she's thinking about it as people get closer and closer. That faith has come right up to the top. She says, there's no way we can answer that. There's no question that's what did happen. We know it's true. The whole city is the same disposition. Wonderful uh, verification of God's intention in the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. Of interest at, at present, but Apparently to all those who were at the seminars at the golf club, it was just a wonderful experience. There was 17 that had booked in. Um, four of our regular friends were, were, were along in that number, but still a lot of other friends that had booked in. And apparently there was 15 along, and a very interesting night was had, and all of them seemed keen to come back and to hear more about the Word of God. So that's a really wonderful work that's happening there, and I'm sure they'd love some more support as well for any that could make it to the golf club on a regular basis to be there with our friends.